Well, uh, we're nearing the end of uh, the, the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, uh, and, and these verses that we're looking at this week and next week are really, really sort of the, the climax of the sermon, right? And as you get into chapter 13, it's kind of just like the closing application of the sermon, some just kind of practical application of, in light of the big idea, here's how you should live, here's some things you need, you should be doing, uh, you should be engaged in. But, but this is really, uh, these, these verses this week and next week are really kind of the height of that sermon, the, the climax of the sermon, the big idea, um, the preacher's bringing that big idea all together for us, uh, and he's pulling together all the things, kind of all the threads of the whole uh, book, the whole sermon, uh, the, the things that he's been saying all the way throughout, and, and he's saying to us, here is how you can press in and press on, right? Here's how you can persevere, even through the most difficult suffering or the most intense persecution, and to illustrate this big idea, the, the preacher contrasts for us two mountains and kind of the two covenants that they represent, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, the old covenant and the new. And he's saying to us, you can persevere to the end by remembering that you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, the better mountain. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we're just so thankful uh, that you love us and that you have pursued us, that, that you have claimed us as your own and taken us in and, and given us a home as your children. And, and Lord, we pray uh, as we've sung today and as we're going to see in this passage today, we will remember what, what, how we are to engage with you, how you have engaged with us and your, your heart for us. Lord, that you would remember that we don't come before you with everything resting on our shoulders to perform for you, to, to earn your approval, but Lord, you have freely given it to us through your Son. And would you help us to remember to whom we have come, to whom we belong, where our hope is today, that you would enable us to persevere for your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Were you freaked out by the peacetime? Do we do all right? Right, well, you can do it, greet with the words, it's all right. Uh, but I think it's time that we always start uh, interacting a little bit, hopefully, but, you know, safely and at a distance. Um, 
to, to encourage one another. Uh, it's a valuable time in our gathering that I have missed and I'm, I'm grateful for. And I'm uh, somewhere in the borderline of an introvert to extrovert. It depends on the moment. So uh, for those of you more extreme, I mean, I have no introverts this year who are like, I need people. Uh, the, so uh, I'm sure we, we can all celebrate it for, for a few moments. And then in a few weeks, you all go hide in the bathroom or whatever you do. But, but anyway, uh, back to the sermon here. In, in the face of trouble, right, this is how you persevere. In an unstable world where things are always changing, where one moment things are going smooth, they're going great, and the next moment the bottom drops out. In such uh, an unstable world, this is how you can live an unshakable life. You remember that you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, the better mountain. And the passage contrasts these two mountains. And first, we're we're pointed to and kind of reminded about Mount Sinai. In in verses 18 through 21 here, they take us back to the scene at Mount Sinai that actually happened in Exodus chapter 19 when the law of God was given to Moses and the people of Israel. Uh, Look at it again with me, verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Right. Mount Sinai was, was the mountain that, that Moses climbed to receive uh, the, the law of God on the people's behalf, right? The, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments given to him there. And, and God commanded Moses in Exodus 19 verse 12 to warn the people as they gathered at the base of that mountain to not go up or to even touch it or they would be put to death, Right? Why the uh, not so warm and cozy kind of welcome, right? Not not so much hospitality. Uh, You you see, God filled that mountain with his glorious, perfect, awesome, holy presence, which consecrated it and set it apart. The place was was filled with the perfect holiness of God. And, And for an uninvited sinner to come into the presence of a perfect, holy God, uh, is to experience what happens in the final scene of uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, uh, when they decide, hey, here's an idea. Let's crack open the, the Lost Ark of the Covenant and just see what happens. Uh, and if you haven't seen that movie in all of its glorious 1980s level uh, special effects, uh, the result is your face gets melted off, right? That's what happens to you. The presence of God always produces a response of reverent fear and awe because we cannot bear in our own sin by our own merits to come and stand in his presence. We will be crushed by it, destroyed by it, annihilated by it. We cannot bear to stand in his presence on our own two feet. To be in his perfect holy presence is to be immediately met with your own unbearable smallness your own unbearable sinfulness. Most of the time, you know, we we go around in life and we're just, all of us, we are living in deep denial. Uh, We we have no idea and definitely not the slightest bit of willingness to admit how selfish we are, truly. I mean, even when we say, yeah, I know I can be a little selfish, we have no idea, nor are we willing to admit how selfish we truly are. Are. 
how cowardly we often are, how, how much evil that we are capable of, each of us. We deny it, like we bury it down deep and we simply just kind of go around unaware, unaware, just ignoring it. But to come into the perfect, holy, awesome presence of God is to be immediately exposed. It, your soul laid bare before him. And, and to be made fully aware of your deep flaws, your deep selfishness, your deep sinfulness, all of it just laid out there before you. You cannot escape it in his presence. You see this repeatedly throughout the Bible. And one of the, the most notable examples of this is, is in Isaiah chapter six, when the prophet Isaiah is given the, this, this uh, vision of the Lord seated on his throne in all of his glory, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the, the temple. Uh, and when that happened, Isaiah did not say, how, how awesome, I'm in the presence of God. Isn't this great? That's not what he said. No, what he said was this. He said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I am undone. Right? I am shattered to pieces. I'm crushed to oblivion. That's what he's saying. And that's how, people, how the people felt at Mount Sinai, at the base of that mountain. The presence of a perfectly holy God exposing their sinfulness, their selfishness, they were shattered. They were absolutely crushed by it. And the Lord's presence on the mountain, it consumed the mountain in this thick smoke. There were earthquakes and thunder and lightning. The ground is shaking beneath their feet because the Lord has descended upon this mountain in fire. The sound wasn't like the angelic sound of harps, you know, you know, it, that's not what the sound was, but rather we're told here a very loud trumpet blast that grew louder and louder and louder. And this was all to demonstrate the presence of God on the mountain. It, it was displaying for us his incomparable power and his sheer and just complete holiness. Thus, the mountain was a place of awe and terror for Israel. They were gathered there, trembling in fear. When the Lord spoke from the mountain to the people, they were so shaken that they begged him, say no more, like just talk to Moses and have Moses talk to us. We cannot bear to hear your voice. It was so intense. They, they, they were commanded to even put to death any animal, any sheep, any goat, any animal that even dared touch the mountain. They were to put it to death. And that command only served to illustrate the, the costliness of, of uncleanness in the midst of God's holy presence. The Israelites feared for their lives. Even, even Moses, we're told, was trembling in fear. And what's, what's interesting, though, in, in this passage is in verse 18, when it says, for you have not come to what may be touched. The, the language for this word come, this idea of approaching, it is a word with deep spiritual meaning. It's not simply referring to like physically approaching the mountain. That's not what it's just talking about. But it's, it's referring to kind of your, your fundamental spiritual approach to God and to life. How is it that you relate to God? How is it that you perceive God to be relating to you? How, how do you approach him? 
How, how do you approach your life? What is the, your fundamental spiritual approach? That's really what's been talked about in that, in that language. And, and here's the thing, everyone, no matter what you believe or what you, what you don't believe, right? You're like, I have no faith. I ascribe to no faith. I don't believe there's a God, right? No matter who you are, what you say you believe or what you don't believe, everyone has a fundamental spiritual approach to life. It's really kind of getting at the question of this. How do you face life? How do you, how do you get through each day? What is it that you're banking on, how you're relating to others, how you're relating to yourself? How, how do you face life? How do you face the, the, the unstable world that we live in, the troubles of, of your life? If someone criticizes you, how do you respond, right? How do you face them? How do you look at yourself when you wake up and you see yourself in the mirror? And if there is a God, and, and even if you would say, I don't think so, just do me a favor, go along with it, right? Let's say there is. If there is a God and he were to appear before you and call you to account for your sin and your selfishness, how would you face him? What would you point to? What would you, what would you talk about in your life, in your defense? And the innate human response that Mount Sinai is pointing us to is that the default mode of our hearts is to say to the critics, to say to yourself, to say to God, well, I've tried my best, right? I've tried to be a good person and I've probably done just as decent a job as anybody else has done at that. That's another way of saying that our default approach is to point to our own performance, our own achievement, our own effort alone. But, but what Sinai exposes is that, is that to face your life this way is to lean on something that can never hold you up in the presence of a perfectly holy and awesome God. It will never hold you up. No matter what it is that you've, you, you've chosen to lean on apart from him, it will crumble beneath you when you are before him. You'll be undone, shattered, crushed, when you, when you build your life, right? We're in a university town. When you build your life on trying to be the, the smartest person in the room, what happens when you encounter someone and inevitably you're going to encounter someone who's smarter than you? What happens to you then? When you pride yourself, your whole life, you've made straight A's and then you come to the university and you get a B, <laughs> a, a C. What happens you try to build your life on being the smartest person, you will eventually counter someone smarter than you and it will shatter you. You try to build your life on having money and when the economy takes a downturn, it crashes. It won't just be difficult for you, it will absolutely crush you. You build your life on, on finding the right relationship, right? The right person, and then rejection comes, it won't just hurt. It will be absolutely devastating. Living like this only, only leads to an eventual meltdown where you will not be able to stand. That's what Sinai represents. That, that was a whole reason for Sinai, in fact. That's why God gave the law to his people there at Sinai. It wasn't to say, here's the path, right? Here's what you need to do. Now get busy, work hard, and, and you make this happen all on your own. 
That wasn't why the law was given. Like, here's the path to to God and to having a, a nice, easy life if you could just keep all my rules. That wasn't the point of Sinai, but rather it was given to show us that on your own, you will never be able to manage this. On your own, you will never be able to stand before God. It was given to us to show us how far we fall short of God's perfect holiness. Make it utterly clear that that you can never build a life for yourself that will be unshakable. You need rescue. You need help. You need to lean not on yourself and what you can do, but on the Lord himself. That's That's where you find an unshakable life. That's what we're meant to see as we're pointed instead to another mountain, right? The better mountain, Mount Zion. The preacher's point is this. Christian, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. So don't continue living like it's on you to find something to build your life on. Did you hear that? Because some of us, we need to hear that over and over and over again, because we, we hear that every Sunday, and then we go right back out in the world, and we live like it's all on our shoulders to perform, to do, to achieve, and that the weight, that we're going to get crushed whether we do it or not. And if you live like that way, uh, you're going to get crushed, absolutely. The Lord is saying to us through the preacher of Hebrews, you have not come to Mount Sinai, You've come to Mount Zion. So don't continue living like it's all on you to build your life, right? But remember what it is or really who it is that your life is now built upon. Remember all that you have come to in him. Now, before we get into like this flurry of awesome things that we have come to in Christ, we shouldn't rush past just the wonderful good news that we're met with right here, that the preacher is first telling us, hey, there, it's possible to have another way. It's possible to build your life on something else. That's even possible is wonderful good news. That, that, it's, that there's a whole new approach to God available to us, that there's a whole new way of facing troubles in this world available to us. That is glorious good news. Much better than Friday when I heard the glorious good news that St. Patrick, Hall of Famer, Patrick Mahomes, is going to play football today, right? Um, the patron saint of football in Kansas City, if you didn't know. Right? It was glorious good news. You're saying there's a chance. That's what I was hearing on Friday. There's a chance that we, we might go to the Super Bowl. So much better. So much better. We're being told here, there's, there's another way. There's an opportunity available to us, another way to approach God, another way to approach the troubles of our life. He tells us that it's possible to have an unshakable life. And he does that by reminding us of all these soaring, glorious, good things that we have come to in Jesus. Look again, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. First, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
as Tim Keller says, like you could actually uh, slap a new title on the Bible and call the, the Bible, instead of the Bible, call it Tale of Two Cities. Because that's really, that's really true. It's what it lives up to, right? There's, there's two cities represented throughout the story of the, the Bible, right? There's the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is, is this present human world that we find ourselves living in. The city that we, we can touch with our hands. It's a city that's all about making a name for yourself at the expense of others. That's the way the city of man works. It's all about pursuing personal power and, and, and happiness. That's top priority in the city of man. Our cities, as a result of that, what are they? They're places of exhaustion and oppression where we just burn ourselves out pursuing, achieving, trying to earn and build for ourselves and we crush anyone who gets in our way. Cities of exhaustion and oppression. But God is building his city. That's what the Bible tells us. The heavenly city. He's laying the foundations of it. And in the future, his city will be the city that we can touch. It will be the new human society. A new human order based not on power but on peace. And the city of God will be a a place of joy and justice. Instead of exhaustion and oppression. Joy and justice. And there the principle of your life to benefit me, the way it works now, will be replaced with the principle of my life to serve you. What a glorious place that will be. Can you imagine living in a city like that? My life to serve you. It's guaranteed, Christian. It's coming. You will experience it. You will live there. And the best news of all, The city of God is a city that can never be shaken. It can't be bombed or burned. It can be sacked. It can never be destroyed. Indestructible, unshakable. And it's definitely coming. But how can something that the Bible says is is coming in the future be be something that we have have come to? Like you you see the the tense that the, the preacher uses there? He says, you have come. To Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have already come to that city that is not yet here. How? How is that possible? Well, the book of Revelation, it gives us a picture of this, this glorious city, right? The city of God joining together with the world to become the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. How is it possible that we have now come to that city? And the answer is that it is possible for those who have experienced the grace of God through faith in Jesus to form a community now, to form communities now with others who have also experienced that grace. That community, right, that is experienced in local expressions of the universal church is a foretaste of that future city. This church is to be a foretaste of that glorious heavenly city. An imperfect but very genuine taste of what is to come as we love and serve and care for one another. And being a part of this community, right, the local church, it encourages, and it encourages you and reminds you that you have a certain and unshakable future 
in that glorious city of God when Christ comes and brings it in its fullness. Next, we've also come to innumerable angels in festal gathering, right? Thousands upon thousands of angels is the, the picture we're supposed to see. Thousands upon thousands of angels in the most joyful assembly. When Isaiah had that vision of the Lord, there were angels, right? There were angels there. And when the birth of Jesus was announced in Luke chapter two to the shepherds, uh, the, the first there's one angel announcing it to him and then all of a sudden there is a heavenly host, right? A bunch of angels in joyful assembly announcing the glory of the newborn king. Do you see how this is a reversal of what happened and the experience that happened at, at Sinai? There at Sinai, when the people started to draw near to the presence of God, they experienced trauma, right? They were overcome and overwhelmed with fear, crushing fear. But now we have come to find that the presence of God is a place of infinite joy, infinite joy. The language of, of a festal gathering, like none of us will ever use that in a sentence. Like we, we, won't, we don't talk that way, uh, but it really means like an incredibly wild party. We will talk that way. Right? Just a joyful celebration, unbelievably joyful celebration. I hope later, I'm sorry, this only happens ever so often in my life, but I hope later today there is a joyful celebration in my home with shouts of, of joy arising from me as my, my Kansas City Chiefs go to the Super Bowl again. Uh, but, but that joy, compared to the joy that is described here, is nothing, right? The joy that's being described here it would supersede the celebration of a thousand Super Bowl victories, right? Because the joy that we're invited into is the joy of our triune God. The joy that our, our God, who is a community, has enjoyed for all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just ascribing love and worship and glory and praise back and forth to one another in, in the Godhead. That perfect fellowship of love and joy is now inviting us to join in, to come in and be a part of, of giving and receiving that love and that joy together with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's what we've been made for. And it's impossible, you know, for me, uh, Jordan and Jamie were over my house and Jordan uh, saw some of my, my record collection, which uh, is... Uh, not that amazing, but obviously it's tilted very heavily, Wilco, Jeff Tweedy. Uh, so it's impossible for me in my love and affinity for the band Wilco and their lead singer, Jeff Tweedy, to like not listen to a new Jeff Tweedy album and say, I got to tell people about how awesome this is, especially a friend like Ethan Harrell, who I know also shares a, a love and affinity for all things Wilco and Tweedy. Uh, so I'm going to talk about it, right? You do that too. That's why when we, we see a beautiful sunset, we take a picture and we post it on our social media because we want to we share this beauty with other people. We're made to do that. We're made to share joy and love because we're made in the image of God. One of the, the most amazing things to think about, I think it is anyway, is, is the wonder that, that we worship a God who is community. He's one God who's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that there was already within God, before he created anything, there was already within God perfect love, perfect worship, and perfect joy. 
there was nothing lacking in him. He didn't need to make a thing to have, like, to complete himself. Like, he, everything was perfect and whole and complete within the triune God. Nothing lacking. So then the question is, why would God bother to create us? If he, if he already has perfect love and worship and joy, he doesn't need us to worship him to have worship. He doesn't need us to love him to have love. He doesn't need us to give him praise for him to experience joy. He already has it perfectly. Why would he create us? The answer is not so that he could get love and, 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 and worship and joy. The only reason that he could have created us then is so he could spread it. So he could share it even further. It just overflowed into the creation of the universe. He created us not to get love and joy, but to give them to us. In Christ, you have come to unshakable joy. That's what we're being told about here. Next, we have also come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That is, we've come to the church to fellow believers in Christ. Jesus is the true firstborn over all creation. Not that he was created, but that he is over all creation, right? He's, he's called the firstborn. He's called the, the firstborn son, the son of God. And by virtue of our union with Christ, by faith in him, we are now firstborn. All of us, all of us. This was a culture here when the book of Hebrews was, was written and preached in which only uh, inheritance rights only worked toward the firstborn son. Firstborn son got the inheritance. You know, second, thirdborn son or daughters, you're out of luck, right? Inheritance goes to the firstborn son. But in Christ, we are all of us, men and women, adopted in as firstborn sons which means all of us get the big inheritance. We get the big inheritance. What an unshakable identity that we have in Christ. You are no longer defined by your performance, good or bad. You're not defined by your sin and your failure, but you are defined by the finished work of Jesus Christ, his perfection, his glory, his payment for your sin and your union with him by faith. You are now firstborn sons. That's who you are. That's who you are, your most fundamental identity. And nothing can take that from you. Nothing can change that for you. You are you're bound together with Christ as God's firstborn sons. But you're also bound together with fellow believers, right? You're adopted into a family. You're not the only firstborn son. There's lots of them. Brothers and sisters who are sitting beside you right now. You're bound together with them. This isn't a club that we like kind of come in and go out of, but a, a people that we belong to in the church. You're also united with those who've gone ahead of you and passed from this world to go and be with Christ. We're united with them too. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those who have passed away and, and gone on from this world and gone to be with Christ ahead of us. We are united with them too. And so what, what you see here is that the church just it keeps expanding and growing on and on and on, this growing assembly of firstborn sons. But there's more still. We also come to God, the judge of all. Now, immediately it's like, okay, how is that a good thing? 
right? How is that good news that we come before God, perfectly holy, awesome God, who is the judge of all, who's, who everything in our lives are, is laid bare before him. There is no secret hiding place that we can keep from his sight. How, how is that good? How is this good news? How is the, the judge of the living and the dead a, a, a source of unshakable joy and identity and an unshakable future? For judgment, if you think about it, is what ultimately shakes us. And that's really kind of the heart of this passage. That's what's so unbearable about Sinai. The holiness of God brought a judgment on the sinful people of Israel. He exposed their lack of holiness and it it shook them to the core. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, felt like he was coming apart, right? He He was judged, he was exposed. What he, what he felt was that he was being judged for who he truly was, and, th- and that was what was happening. This entire passage is really about judgment here in, in these verses. God's shaking us, but we can't possibly bear God's shaking of us. So how can this be good? How can this be part of our coming to know and live in this unshakable joy with an unshakable identity and an unshakable future? The answer is Jesus, right? The Sunday school answer, the easy answer. But, but friends, sometimes the, the, just because it's the easy answer doesn't mean it's not the right answer. It's the right answer. It's because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant of grace. Do you know what happened to Jesus on the cross as he died? You read in Matthew chapter 27, these words in verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cried out a little later with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Matthew 27, verse 50. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Do you hear that? Earthquake, darkness, gloom, rocks split. What does that sound like? It's Mount Sinai all over again. At the cross, Jesus Christ was being judged. Jesus was being shaken. He was getting the judgment that you and I deserve for our sins. Now, now some people want to say, hey, all religions are are basically the same. They're just different paths leading to the, the same destiny. But that is simply not true. It's not true. In Christianity, in the gospel, you have the only religion that says the judge of all came down to bear the judgment, not to bring it. The creator and the sustainer of the universe, he took on flesh and he went to the cross where he was shaken and undone. He was undone to make you whole. He was shaken to make you unshakable. He bore the judgment that tore the curtain of the temple in two so that the very presence of God, the presence that you were made for, the presence that, that you're, you're longing for, the presence if you're, you're really honest with yourself, you're really searching for in, in all the ways that you perform and work and do and the relationships that you pursue, the presence that you can never seem to find in any of those things. It's the presence of God that you're longing for. And the death of Jesus opened the way for you to come into it, not with fear, 
but with great joy. Not by trying to build an identity for yourself, but by receiving a gifted identity as an adopted firstborn son of God. Not by working to make a future, but believing and knowing that you have an unshakable future in the city of God because Jesus has secured it for you. That's how you lift your drooping drooping hands and and strengthen your weak knees that we talked about last week. This is how you press on and, and persevere in the face of great suffering and persecution. This is the way even in such an unstable world, to have an unshakable life. This is the sure and steady anchor for your soul. You see the love of God in Christ for you. That's it. That he would come and bear your judgment and to welcome you into his presence with joy. You remember that, that Jesus has shed his blood to pay your debt of sin in full. And remember that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel who was killed by his brother Cain, right? In Genesis uh, 4, his blood cries out from the ground for vengeance, for judgment. But Jesus' blood shouts from the heavens that you are forgiven and you have peace with God. Remember that you have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, the better mountain. Let the grace of Jesus keep you marching forward till the day that you find yourself in the fullness of that heavenly city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for making it possible to come into your presence with joy and not terror. There's a reality that that for some of us, it's, it's hard to understand the gospel. It's hard not to think that Christianity is just another religion to follow. But Lord, would you help us to see the good news of your gospel? Would you help us to see that Jesus has come and endured the judgment we deserve, to see that Jesus has lived the righteous life that we never could? Help us to see that that Jesus has offered us grace and forgiveness and enabled us to come into the city of God as citizens, as firstborn sons with an unshakable identity unshakable joy, and an unshakable future. Help us to believe that and cling to Jesus. Help those of us who do believe that to be gripped by it. For if we're honest, we fail to worship you with the reverence and awe and joy that we should. We are not often as thankful as we should be. We are not as joyful as we should be. We don't pray enough. We don't sing enough. We fail to truly enjoy the wonder and glory of your presence that we have been invited into. Forgive us, cleanse us, and renew us by your grace that we might truly live unshakable lives for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.